Yeah, I'm on. All right, let's do this. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Uh oh. Oh no. I'm going to mess something up for sure. So, I'm Chris. I'm on staff with the University of Amherst College and excited to get to open God's Word with you. If you were here last week, you know that we started another, a new sermon series last week called Fired Up. So we're looking at the book of 2 Timothy. I would encourage you to be reading along with us in 2 Timothy. We're going through it pretty slowly because it's not that long of a book. What is it like? It's four chapters, and so we're spending the whole semester mostly on that. So yeah, I encourage you to be in 2 Timothy with us as we're studying that. If you were here last week, you know where we get this fired up from. Um, in, the, in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul encourages Timothy to fan into flame the gift that's in him. So the encouragement was to live radically and boldly as the person that God has made you to be. And the promise was that as the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to do that, you will walk in power and love and self-control. And we as a body will get to be made into the body. The Holy Spirit will make us into the body of Christ as, as each of us lives out our calling obediently, being the people that Jesus called us to be. That was last week. And now, um, Paul seems to anticipate what will happen to each of us, what will happen to us as we start to live unashamedly, even recklessly, radically, in obedience to Jesus. You'll, and you catch the logic in verse 8. Or actually, going back to verse 6, Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And then in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed. So he seems to anticipate that shame will be a temptation. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. So Paul's second and third commandments here in the, in the Bible, I mean, sorry, in his letter from Timothy, we have fan into flame the gift that's in you. That was last week. And this week we have don't be ashamed but share in suffering. And I want to just highlight the fact that that statement, share in suffering, verges on crazy. Paul says, suffer. Come suffer. That's wild. And if we've been in the church for a while, I think we can become numb to the insanity of that statement, but that is nuts. It's against everything that our culture tells us, right? Suffering is a taboo in our culture. We we see, yeah, the, the goal of life is the opposite of suffering. It's health and wealth and prosperity, but like security, pleasure. Paul says, come suffer. It's wild. What a way to recruit someone. Come suffer with me. So Paul's invitation here is to endure ongoing pain, hardship, and distress. And I, I think he's saying that living radically for Jesus will result in suffering. You will suffer as you live for Jesus. See in verse eight, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. Let me be clear what I'm not talking about, what I don't think Paul is talking about. Paul is not just pro-suffering. He's not excited about suffering. And actually, this this passage has been used out of context along with others in the Bible to condone oppression or to say to people in oppression or suffering injustice, you should just suffer. It's okay. I don't think Paul is saying that he's not condoning passivity or acquiescence in the face of suffering and justice. This can't be used as a proof text to say to people who are being abused, go on being abused. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel. And not all suffering is suffering for the gospel. He's not pro-suffering. Paul is pro-Jesus. And he's saying to Timothy, live for Jesus 
And you're going to have to endure the consequences of that. And that's going to be really painful. Suffer for Jesus. Look at, at verse 11. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. He's talking about suffering because of faithfulness. Suffering because of obedience. Not suffering because he did it wrong. Or suffering because he's being oppressed unjustly. He's saying, I'm suffering because I'm following Jesus. So the question is, why does this happen? Why does following Jesus with all of our heart and life cause suffering? And the thing is, this is not just crazy Paul's idea. Jesus said this is going to happen. So on the, on the last night that Jesus had with his disciples, he told them to expect suffering. In John 15, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And one last caveat before we dive into what it looks like to suffer for Jesus. I recognize that in the American church, or at least in churches that I've been in, we can be a little weird about suffering. Um, given the fact that we, we, it's, we don't often suffer physical persecution, um, when we stir up a heart for suffering, we can get weird. So we don't face persec- uh, physical persecution, but we know that we should expect it. And so sometimes a call to go suffer for Jesus means that we'll, like, it just stirs us into a frenzy for really condemning witness, and we'll, we'll go condemn people. And when they turn away, we say, like, look at us, we're suffering for Jesus. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul, yeah, uh, we, we'll leave sometimes in, in some churches, we'll get so fired about persecution that we'll go out into the world trying to live for Jesus, and we think, well, if no one's persecuting me, I better upset somebody. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not suffering for the gospel. Jesus is not honored by a spouting condemnation. That's manufacturing suffering. That's a sort of like suffering for its own sake. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. But there is something about following Jesus faithfully, unashamedly, without compromise that leads to suffering. What is it? Why? I want to try to answer that with a little thought experiment. So imagine what it would be like for you to live for Jesus with no compromise. Totally sold out. Totally unashamed. And yes, I'm talking about evangelism, but I'm I'm talking about more than just evangelism. The way that you speak. The way that you spend your money. Your sleeping habits. Your smartphone use. The clothes you wear. Your sexuality. Your diet. What if all of your life was surrendered to the lordship of Jesus? Like, what, what if you were so generous that you couldn't afford to buy the things that keep you trendy? Or, or what, if, what if you actually, like, what if we obeyed Jesus' command to confess our sins to one another and we had to break that facade of perfect Christianity? So what would it look like for you to live in radical submission to Jesus without compromise in every area of your life? Totally surrender. Just imagine it. And w- take note of what fears come up. Because I think intuitively we know that would be really costly, right? So the way that we live our, our life with Jesus mostly is we're just making little compromises all the time. Like just being a little quieter than we, than we think we should be. Or um, yeah, just little compromises to Jesus' words that keep us normal. So the question is, what are you protecting in your compromises? So we, yeah, we don't usually experience physical persecution, in our, in our culture. 
But suffering for us looks like a slow death. The slow and persistent surrendering of worldly prestige. Enduring mocking or belittling. Suffering rejection from friends and family. Following Jesus with everything is costly because we, we give up, we surrender all those little compromises that keep us normal. All the things that we're protecting. And that, that's suffering. We forfeit the same things that we're now protecting. All those little, well, what would they think if I, or would I really be okay if I did? What would it be like if, if this, if I did that thing? We surrender all the things that keep us normal. But the truth is that you and I follow a master who was anything but normal by the world's standards. He was not normal. Jesus ushered in a new way of life and a new kingdom that pointed in a different direction from the values of this world. So when we follow that master, it's like we're going against the current in the stream of our culture. All the values of our culture, Jesus turns on their head. And so, um, yeah, while our world pushes us towards valuing power and security and wealth, Jesus lived in a different way. He ushered in a new kingdom. Our master, God, came and lived in need and poverty and said, blessed are the poor when he announced his kingdom. He even said, woe to you who are rich. How countercultural is that? He said, blessed are the starving. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who admit their neediness, who are desperate for healing. God came here and in flesh lived a life marked by humility and meekness. This is a radically different kingdom than the one that this world offers and points to. James Cone puts it like this. He says, The kingdom of God always exists in an antagonistic relationship to the ways of this world. So when we follow a master who lived and spoke like that, it's like swimming upstream. And so when we start to speak up and live out the ways that Jesus lived, we're going against the stream of the culture. And that makes waves. That's painful, not just for us, but all the people that we were connected to, the communities that we were in, continue to flow in the ways of the world, and we're going the opposite direction. That's a painful rupturing. And the, and the truth is, I'm not, I'm not just condemning culture. My heart is being pulled by that stream, too. I want security. Like I, I want wealth. I, I want worldly approval in my heart. And so as I'm following Jesus, every little act of repentance, there's a tearing there where my allegiance to Jesus is pulling me in a different direction from the ways that I would naturally go, from the ways that those around us are going as we go against the stream. I'm talking about when you refuse to participate in the habits or vices that held your friendship together and you're outcast. You're boxed out of the friend group because you don't fit in anymore. Or when someone says, well, if, if all you're going to talk about is Jesus, I don't really want to hang out. You don't really need to come to our party. So the invitations stop coming. Look at Paul. He says, I'm in, I'm in prison, I'm in chains. Because I follow Jesus' directions. I'm a preacher. I'm an apostle. I'm a teacher. I'm doing the things that Jesus appointed me to do. And that is why I'm suffering. You know what happened to Paul? He was in Jerusalem, in the temple, the hub of Jewish life and worship, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And saying, all this religious apparatus, we don't really need it anymore because Jesus is King and Lord and his sacrifice is sufficient. So put your trust in him. And the Jews didn't like that. 
He was proclaiming a kingdom and a king that the Jews didn't recognize. The world doesn't like. And so they attacked him. Paul was being mobbed. And he was near death. So Roman soldiers came in and arrested Paul to save him from the mob, to protect him. So Paul goes to prison. Paul appeals to hire governors and eventually is shipped to Rome. But that's why Paul is in prison. He's saying, that's why I suffer as I do. Because he was living for and proclaiming a kingdom and a king that the world does not recognize. And a, wor- a king that the world does not like. You can imagine. I think the process of discipleship is like a stock market. Because you have all these things you can invest in. And the, and the world places value on certain things that give you worth. So um, the process of discipleship is divesting your hope and worth from the things that world, the world ascribes value to and placing them in Jesus instead. So instead of worldly acclaim, we're saying, Jesus, you tell me who I am. Instead of success that makes us popular in the world, we're divesting our hope from those things and placing them in Jesus' hands. And so from a worldly perspective, as our friends and family and neighbors look at us, as we're totally divested from all the things the world has placed value on, it looks like death. That looks like suffering, right? And the world says, oh, you're nothing. You have really nothing that I like. Nothing to offer. So it feels like death, and the world says you're nothing. But that's the process of discipleship. That's the process of following Jesus. And Paul is saying, join in. Paul is saying, come suffer. Identification with Jesus will lead to suffering. Because we are pursuing things other than the things that the world ascribes value to. A different kingdom. That's the first thing that happens when we start to follow Jesus. So we'll suffer. Because we're following a different king and a different kingdom. But something else happens, and it's amazing. The second thing that Paul shows us. What happens when you live sold out for Jesus? The first is that you'll experience suffering. But there's another thing that happens when you live in total abandonment for Jesus. The invitation to wholehearted surrender to Jesus is an invitation to shamelessness. You will be unashamed, Paul says. And Paul models this for us. Identifying with Jesus insulates us from shame forever. Paul says, in the midst of suffering, and when the world looks at you and says, you are nothing, you'll be unashamed. Let me define shame for us. Guilt and shame are things we talk about often. And if you're familiar with Brene Brown, she makes this distinction, and I think it's super helpful. Guilt is when you look back at what you've done and you say, what I did was wrong. Shame is when you look at yourself and the feeling is much more closer to home, saying who I am is wrong. What I am is wrong. So guilt is what I've done is wrong. Shame is what I am is wrong or bad. Paul's saying in the midst of suffering, in the midst of ridicule, even abandonment, notice Paul says Phygelus and Hermogenes have turned away. I'm alone in prison. All of Asia, a continent, turned away from me. He's alone in a, in a prison cell and in the midst of that, he says, I'm unashamed. And he gives us two reasons. Look with me in verse 12. So I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am unashamed. Reason one, for I know whom I have believed. I know him. The strength that Paul finds in suffering comes from intimacy with a suffering king. I know him. I know whom I'm following. 
That word no in the Greek is the same word that Peter says when he denies Jesus. I don't know him. Remember the scene, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin in that trumped up trial. And they're slapping him and spitting on him. They're mocking him. And they're going to put him to death. Meanwhile, Jesus is out, Peter's outside and a, a woman says to Peter, hey, don't you know him? Aren't you with him? And Peter says, I do not know that man. Three times. I don't know him. I'm not associated with him. It's the same Jesus that Paul says, I know him. I'm with that guy. I know who I believe. I know that man. I'm with him. His story is my story. You need to associate us. That guy on trial being spit on and mocked and whipped and crucified. I'm with him. You can catch it in Paul's language in verse 8. Remember Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me. His story is my story. The testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul's in Rome. I'm not, the Romans think I'm their prisoner. I'm his prisoner. I'm here for Jesus. I'm with him. I know him. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed because I'm with him. We just sang these words and I love them. Oh, that it, that it would be the cry of our heart. Like, oh, to be like him. I give all I have just to know him. Jesus, there's no one beside you. You're forever the hope in my heart. I feel like that's Paul's heart there. I'm not embarrassed because I know him. So when the world tells us to tone it down about that Jesus stuff, or you really don't understand, you need to live like this. We can say, with all due respect, I know whom I'm following. I know him. That's the first reason Paul is unashamed. I know him. And the second reason is, I know him and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What has been entrusted to Paul? I think if you look closely at the text, I think Paul's talking about the gospel message, the testimony of our Lord. Uh, the reason I think that is, um, to Paul is saying, Jesus has appointed me, he's entrusted me to carry on this message. And then later, verse 13 and 14, Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So there's this passing along. Jesus has given me this thing and he's going to guard it. I'm going to pass it on to you, Timothy. You need to guard it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, th I think he's talking about this message. So he's saying, I'm not ashamed because I know that Jesus is going to guard this truth. He's going to guard this message, this movement that he started. It's not a flash in the pan. I'm attached to something that's, going to, that's valuable. Jesus is going to protect this good news. In other words, I'm not suffering for nothing. I'm a part of a movement that will win. I won't be put to shame because this is going to survive. But actually, there's, uh, there's something in the Greek that's going on here. I don't know Greek, but I enjoyed studying this this week. Um, in, if you're reading the ESV, there might be a note in your Bible on that passage because I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what he's been entrusted to me. If you're reading an NIV, they render it differently. Instead of he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me, the NIV renders it He's able to guard what I have entrusted to him. And so the Greek is actually pretty ambiguous. It just says he's able to guard until that day my deposit. So, yeah. It's not really clear. Is it Paul's stuff that he's given to Timothy and 
I'm sorry, Paul's stuff that he's given to Jesus, or is it Jesus' stuff that he's given to Paul that Paul's now giving back to Jesus? But the point, it doesn't really matter. Notice that it's Jesus who's guarding it, right? So the ownership is conflated because they're sharing things, and Paul's handing it over to Jesus' hands, trusting that Jesus will guard it. Either way, whether it's Paul's stuff or Timothy's stuff, Jesus is guarding it. Paul is saying that the freedom from shame that he's experienced comes from the fact that he can trust Jesus with all of his stuff. I've given everything to Jesus, and he's able to guard it. I'm convinced, or I'm I'm definitively persuaded that he is able. And I'm unashamed because I'm banking everything on Jesus' power. Looking at that investment illustration again, Paul is saying, all of my hope, all of my identity, I've put in the hands of Jesus. And so this amazing thing happens as we divest our hope from the, the things that the world ascribes value to, to worldly acclaim, and we hand it to Jesus, right? And approval, and we hand it to Jesus. Worldly worth in the eyes of the world, hand it to Jesus. All of our identity handed to Jesus. All of a sudden, everything's in Jesus' hands, and we have nothing to lose. There's nothing left. And Paul's saying, I'm convinced that he's able to guard all of that. All my hope, all my identity, all my security, it's placed in his hands. And so the, the amazing thing that happens is when, when you give Jesus everything, you have nothing to lose. The world has no leverage on Paul. You can throw him in prison and beat him and mock him. He can experience abandonment, and he says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he can guard until that day all that I've entrusted to him. He hasn't unprecedented security. When we give everything to Jesus, we find security like we've never known. Paul has an unassailable hope. Nothing can take it away because it's not subject to the world's market or worldly opinion. And the amazing thing is, it's not just that the world has no leverage anymore. He's given all of his hope and trust and identity to a God who speaks a better word than the world. Because the truth is that, notice Paul doesn't say, He says, I'm not ashamed. He doesn't say, I'm not guilty. He doesn't say, I'm innocent. Paul is too good of a Jewish scholar to say something like that. He knows better. He knows the law. In Romans 3, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul knows that because you and I are sinners, and so is he, we actually deserve rejection from God. We deserve punishment from God. So Paul doesn't say, I'm not guilty. In fact, he knows he is guilty. And the truth is that given our Sin, given the brokenness of our identity, sin, not just the things we commit, but the ways that it's worked itself into ourselves, shame is not an inappropriate conclusion. Paul says all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So standing in the, in the presence of God, shame is an appropriate thing to feel. We don't deserve his love. We couldn't earn it. But thanks be to God, that God made Jesus sin, even though Jesus was totally righteous. God made Jesus sin and crucified him so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, on the cross, Jesus bore all the sin and shame that we would deal with. He actually experienced rejection from God. The Father turned his face away. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the rejection from God so that you and I wouldn't have to. And Jesus experienced that brokenness and shame 
the psalm that Jesus is referring to when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It also says, I am a worm and not a man. See, in that moment, Jesus was experiencing crippling shame. And he experienced that rejection so that you and I could be welcomed. He experienced, he was bruised so that we could be comforted. He was exiled so that we could be welcomed in. See, as we divest all of our hope from the world and hand it to the Lord, we understand, we get to know that that he speaks a better word, a word of worthiness and approval, that he actually died to procure our pardon. And through this mysterious work, we, we hear not guilty, the verdict given to us that we didn't deserve it. We hear, you are worthy. We hear, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. He was despised and rejected so that we could be welcomed and so that we would never have to be rejected. So the question of your worth is settled. And it's not because of our works, as Paul says, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then to convince us of his power, to convince us that he is able, that we might be firmly persuaded that he is able to confirm and display the power of God, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He broke death. He canceled it. Death is abolished. It's that God who rose from the dead, who conquered over the greatest enemy, death. That God says, I love you. That God says, you don't need to be ashamed. He's purchased our dignity. It's that freedom from shame that Paul has found in a damp Roman prison cell. In the face of abandonment and condemnation and physical pain, he says, I'm not ashamed. I know him. I know who I chose to follow. I'm convinced that he's able to guard everything about me, all my identity and hope. He has paid the price to make me worthy. I can't be put to shame. So you and I need to check our hearts daily. How is your your heart portfolio looking? What areas of your heart does the world still have the power to determine your worth? What areas of your identity are you still waiting on worldly approval to say if you're good or bad, or fighting for approval, or worldly acclaim? For me, uh, and I don't know what it is for you, but it might be moments of feeling like a failure, or when someone critiques you. How How well do you handle critique or correction? Because sometimes those are the moments when someone says, hey, you didn't do this right, and we'll, we'll respond with, well, you don't really know the circumstances. Or, I'm actually better than you think. Or, I can do better this time. Covering our shame. And those are the moments that reveal the fact that our hope for identity is actually still subject to the world's market. And so it's in those moments, I recommend this practice to you. Make note of those moments. Make notes of the part of your heart that are still uh, being determined by the world. And then in prayer, literally, imagine Jesus standing in front of you and acknowledge those things. Jesus, I'm still trusting in the world's determination for my identity. I'm still trusting more in worldly approval than I am of your approval. And Jesus, I want to hand that to you. Just, yeah, try that practice for you. It's been really powerful for me. And I, and I know that the truth is that Jesus has earned worthiness for you. So he'll speak back as we hand him these things. I'm, Jesus, I... Don't trust you 
when you say I'm good. We'll be reminded of the truth that he has purchased our value. He has said you are worthy. And we can fully invest our hope and trust in the, in the truth that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection proved. So the invitation from Paul is this. Come follow Jesus with everything, even though it's costly. Because we have a love that won't ever fail. He already beat death. We have a worth that we could never have earned. We have a God who will never leave us. We have a life that will never end. So when you place your life and your hopes and your entire worth in Jesus' hands, you find a hope and security like you've never known. Will you do that? Will you place all of your hope and trust in Jesus? Will you give Jesus everything? Because the truth is, until we do, we'll still be vulnerable to the judgments of this world. Our own sense of worth and identity will sway with the world's market, the world's determination as we fit in or don't fit into the current trend. So do you want to live life to the full? And I'm not talking just about salvation and heaven. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and life to the fullness. If we want the fullness of life that Jesus offers, it means we have to give him everything. Place all of our hope and trust in him. And the truth is that Paul's recognizing it is so costly. It feels like death and suffering because the world will look at you and say you're nothing. It's so costly, but at the same time, it's so freeing because the world will mock you and will try to stop you from radical obedience. You might be boxed out of your friendship, but you will find a love unlike any other. You'll find in Christ a treasure like you've never known and a security like you couldn't have imagined. You'll be impervious to shame. It'll hurt. It'll look foolish. But if Jesus is holding on to all of your hope, all of your security, all of your identity, you have nothing to lose. It's a good investment because he conquered death. He's able to guard everything. It's a hymn I love that I think gets at this point. It says, there's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There's an anchor for my soul, and I can say that it is well. The grave, oh, sorry, Jesus has overcome, and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is already won because he's risen from the dead. The invitation for you is don't settle. Give Jesus everything. He's able. Actually, the invitation is the same if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. If you're a Christian today, the invitation is to investigate the parts of your heart that are still fluctuating, still so invested in the things that the world has to say about you and to give all that to Jesus and to follow him recklessly, unashamedly, no matter the cost. Give everything to Jesus. And actually, the invitation is the same for the non-Christians in the room. If you've never given your whole heart and life to Jesus, I want you to know that there's a God who pronounces worth that we could never earn and love that we don't even deserve, that will never waver. So I want to invite you to give your heart and life to Jesus. Trust him for all your hope and security. And live for him, no matter the cost, because it will be painful. But you'll have a security like you couldn't have imagined. So we're going to take communion. And um, the story is that on the night that Jesus died, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. 
and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew that he would have to be rejected so that we would be welcomed in. That he would have to be a worm and not a man so that you could live in dignity. And so we're going to take this as a family meal, knowing that Jesus has purchased not just us individually, but has bought us as a body. And so if you're in the family of God, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come and take this in recognition that Jesus' sacrifice has purchased all that we need. And so we're going to take it in recognition of God's grace. If you are not a Christian, we invite you to stay in your seat and to consider the barriers that keep you from God. What are the things that you're still holding on to that Jesus is asking you to give him, to place in his hands? Um, And then during that time, there'll be people in the back who would love to pray for you. I'll be back there if you have questions or you want to be prayed for. And um, I would love to, and these people also would love to just pray through what it looks like to give over all of your heart, invest all of your heart and soul in Jesus. Um, so we'll take communion. If you, if you haven't taken communion with us, the, the way we do it is uh, this aisle will come and receive, you'll receive the bread and the cup over here, and you can go back to your seat that way, and this aisle will also, so just down the, down the back, people in the back in the prayer. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. Lord God, we thank you that you have conquered, and the battle is won. And Jesus, we just pray that you would give us the strength to give you everything. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us in our walk with you that will be costly, but that you would insulate us from shame. So God, we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.